0: Good morning, and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents here on Community Radio 3CR one minute past nine o'clock. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Jodie Paskett. We're taking you through to 9.30 this morning. Of course today is the federal election in Australia Um, so make sure you get out to vote and exercise um, your democratic right to do that even though we have various analyses of what elections are and what they mean and how meaningful or otherwise they are. But quite frankly... um, Make sure you exercise uh, the vote. It is a media blackout, though, so we won't be campaigning at all on the show today. There are some other significant elections in the region, though, that we will be reporting on. And in the second part of today's show, we're going to speak to May Katsakis from um, PASA, the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association, uh, about the recent win of uh, Marcos um, Bongbong Jr., uh, or Bongbong Marcos Jr., Uh, the son of former dictator Ferdinand Marcos. Uh, So we'll talk about the consequences of
1: that election. Of course, Jody, you've got a story about the election in Lebanon. I do indeed. And also when you go to vote, make sure you buy a sausage or a cake from your primary school to support all the work that parents are doing. And the community are doing down there because um, election days, they only come down around every three years for us to do that fundraising.
0: Oh, no fundraising,
1: but for a sausage sizzle once every three years. <laughs> well, you know, it's the best one of the, you know, it's it's where, you, you know, you rake in the dough. I see, I see um
0: so we will uh, the other announcement i wanted to make before we start with news from around the region is that radiothon is coming um and the uh, uh, asia pacific current show is i think around the 19th of june but i'll get that exact date for you but look listeners we know that you listen to lots of different shows across 3cr so please dig deep this radiothon and give generously so that we can
1: keep progressive voices on air Over to you, Jody, with our first story. All right. First of all, as Giselle mentioned, we're in Lebanon. In a surprise result in Sunday's elections, the Lebanese Shia group, Hezbollah, lost its majority in Lebanon's parliament. Against many predictions and in a surprise result, the Lebanese Shia group, Hezbollah, lost its majority. I'm sorry, I've just read that. I'm repeating myself. Securing only half or slightly less of the seat's. While it may have held onto its own seats, it lost in terms of the seats held by its Maronite, Catholic, and even Druze and Sunni allies. Initially, it was widely expected that the turnout in the elections would be high, driven by a thirst for change in the faces and policies that drove Lebanon to the brink of bankruptcy. But as the elections approached, the hopes pinned on civil society forces, especially those that had risen with the protest movement, dissipated because these forces proved unable to work together or organise unified electoral lists. As a whole, the forces of change won a total of 15 seats, which might rise if any of the independent figures in Parliament join it. The KATEB also scored a gain from three to five seats, according to the preliminary results, while the Takedom retained the nine seats it held in the previous Parliament. The Druze allied with Hezbollah lost their seats in favour of the forces of change. Therefore, while Hezbollah may have held on to its own seats, it lost in terms of the seats held by its allies.
0: Yeah, quite a bit happening in Lebanon, and we'll try and bring some analysis of what's happening in that part of the world in um, future shows. But staying in the Middle Eastern region or West African region, the trade union movement in the MENA region, so that is a Middle East and North African region, and around the world is saddened by the terrible loss of Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akler, who worked for Al Jazeera Network for over two decades. She was shot dead by Israeli soldiers while covering their raid on the occupied West Bank city of Jenin in the early morning of the 11th of May. According to a statement published by the International Federation of Journalists, the Israeli army attributed her death to fire from Palestinian forces in a clash with Israeli soldiers. However, Al Jazeera's Ramallah Bureau Chief Walid El Omari said that there had been no shooting by a Palestinian government. The Palestinian journalist syndicate said that the crime was deliberate and planned to assassinate her. There are a few testimonies from the journalists who were with her when she was killed saying that they were moving as a group or wearing journalist gear and clearly identified when they were shot at by Israeli snipers. They were the only group in the street. There were no demonstrators or exchange of fire. Shireen is remembered as a pioneer in a generation that broke stereotypical gender roles in TV journalism. She was one of the first Arab women war correspondents in the late 1990s, when the traditional role of women journalists was restricted to newsrooms and TV screens. The Global Union signing to this statement condemned the killing of Abu Akleh by the Israeli army and demand an independent investigation and that the perpetrators be brought to justice. Attacks on Palestinian journalists and media workers by Israeli army have been going on for years with impunity. The IFJ's recently submitted case to the International Criminal Court alleging that Israel's systematic targeting of journalists working in Palestine and failure to properly investigate killing of media workers amounts to war crimes.
1: And now we're moving closer to home in New Zealand where 10,000 healthcare workers strike um so in t- 10,000 healthcare workers held a nationwide strike on the 24-hour strike on May 16th. The strike went ahead after the Public Service Association Union, the District Health Board, and the State's Employment Relations Authority failed to reach an agreement to call it off. The PSA members are continuing to work, a continuing work to rule industrial action until May 20th, which includes a ban on overtime and on working during breaks. Thousands of workers and supporters took part in protests and picketed in Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch and many regional cities, including Nelson Rotorua um, and Palmerston North. The allied health workers are employed in more than 70 occupations, including anaesthetic technicians, audiologists, occupational therapists, dental technicians, social workers physio and physiotherapists and workers who process COVID-19 tests. Many of these workers are making little more than the legal minimum wage of twenty-one twenty an hour. Their pay has effectively been frozen since their previous employment contract ended 18 months ago. Conditions for healthcare workers have dramatically worsened as a result of the government's decision last October to end its COVID-19 elimination policy and to allow the virus to spread throughout the country. According to the Ministry of Health, 986 people had died with COVID as of May 17, up from 59 at the end of 2021. The toll is likely to pass 1,000 deaths by the end of the week. Hospitals currently have more than 400 patients with the virus and thousands of hospital workers have been infected, leading to major staffing shortages and delays for essential medical procedures.
0: And here in Australia, a group of Alice Springs Community Development Program workers have released a powerful, powerfully worded statement calling the CDP a racist scheme that keeps Indigenous people in poverty. The statement was drawn up after workers expressed their frustration at a meeting of the First Nations Workers Alliance, which was set up to help unionise Indigenous people on the CDP. They write, or the workers' statement rather, reads We have been suffering under the NT intervention for ten years now. This is a very racist policy and takes away our freedoms as Aboriginal people and puts us into deep poverty. It is having a serious impact on emotional and cultural well being. The intervention needs to end now. Under CDP we have no rights to workers' compensation, superannuation, holiday pay or other rights many workers take for granted. We are paid well below minimum wage, half of it on our basics card. We need proper wages, paid in cash, and equality between black and white workers. Under the CDP, workers receive $11.60 per hour for working 25 hours a week. Just criminal, actually. Just criminal. The program replaced the previous Community Development Employment Program, which had allowed communities the discretion to allocate federal funds to communities for work.
1: And now we're in India. A major fire in a CCTV and router manufacturing company in Delhi on the 13th of May killed 27 people and injured 12. The fire is one of the deadliest fire disasters in recent years in India's capital. The fire started on the first floor and spread throughout the four-story building due to the presence of combustible plastic material used in the manufacture of cameras and stacks of packaging cardboard. A short circuit is believed to have started, is believed to have started the fire. Seventy people were inside when the fire started. The heavy smoke caused by the plastic material made it difficult for people to escape the building because all the floors were connected by only one small staircase. According to media reports, people were forced to break windows to flee the fire. Industrial South Asia Regional Secretary says this tragedy shows the danger of the diluted system of workplace inspectors. The Labor Department needs to conduct proper inspections which can save lives.
0: And our last story for the morning is a victory in Thailand where 13 months of continuous campaigning has led to a union win for Triumph International Thailand Labor Union. Now, Brilliant Alliance Thai Global, BAT, will pay the money owed to the just under 1,400 illegally fired workers. The 1,400 workers were fired without notice in March 2021 as a factory supplying lingerie brands to Victoria's Secret, Turred and Lane Bryant suddenly closed using the pandemic and a lack of orders as reasons. The workers, mostly women, were left in dire conditions in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic as the factory owners refused to pay wages, overtime, holiday and severance pay owed. The Thai Labor Inspector ordered the company to pay 242 million Thai baht, um, which is about 7.4 million US dollars, for violating the country's labor laws. The company offered to pay workers in instalments over a 10-year period. When this was rejected by the union, the company went into liquidation and promised to fulfil its legal obligations. Since there was no further movement, the the Triumph International Thai Labor Union, uh, together with the Textile Workers Federation of Thailand and the Confederation of Industrial Labor of Thailand, held several demonstrations demanding that the company and the government fulfil workers' rights under the labour laws. On the 14th of February, Valentine's Day, Industrial organised a regional day of action and unionists from Australia, Indonesia, Japan, Korea, Malaysia, Mongolia, Philippines and Thailand participated in store actions, a social media campaign and sending protest letters to the brands demanding that the workers be paid immediately. After negotiations, the company has now agreed to pay $8 million U.S. million do- US in total to the lingerie workers by the end of April. The amount includes the wages, the overtime, holiday and severance pay that the brilliant alliance Thai Global, name of the um, company responsible that barred, owed the workers as well as 8% per annum interest. An amazing victory by those workers. Congratulations. Great to announce some victories every mm-hmm. now and again. It's 14 minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. We're going to go do some community announcements and then our feature interview this morning, May Katsakis, about the Philippines elections.
2: Hi, it's Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them.
0: It is 15 minutes past nine o'clock You're on Community Radio 3CR. This is Asia Pacific Currents. Well, as predicted, uh, Bongbong Marcos won the Philippines election, the presidential election, in a landslide. To join us now is May Katsakas from PASA, the Philippines Australia Solidarity Association, to talk about, well, firstly, the predictability of the election result, but also what accounts for it. Good morning and welcome, May.
2: Hi, good morning.
0: Well, as I said, it was predictable. Everybody was predicting that the victory would be a landslide. Um, there is a lot of analysis out at the moment about the misuse of uh, misinformation, fake news, uh, and so on. Well, what do you? How do you account for the re-election of basically another dictator in the Philippines? Yes,
2: actually, actually, even now there are lots of reports. About the election fraud and massive cheating, the uh, this information I can I am going to uh, itemize some of those that were reported and that were uh, found out by the uh, Contradaya. This is a, a group that is uh, 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 formed to monitor the election, and there was also an international observers mission and international monitoring that was formed as well. So the election fraud and massive it start as early as 1991, apparently, when the Marcos family tried to come back to the political arena to become uh, politicians again. But then, but the massive, massive disinformation actually started when the 31 in the 2016 election, and in November 18, uh, 2016, actually the 30 allowed. Marco's senior body to be buried in the hero cemetery, even with the opposition of many Filipinos, because he was actually convicted as a criminal, and but 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 he was allowed to be buried in the hero cemetery in the Philippines. So the disinformation actually at that from that time was massive. Even even the uh, uh, school books, the texts, what was being taught in the schools mentioned that during the Marcos regime, this is the Marcos senior, it was the golden years of the Philippines. There was mention of many infrastructure built, but no mention of the martial law atrocities, including human rights violations and the plunder and the money that was stolen by the Marcos family. Now, in the Philippines, more than half of the voting population, the census actually as of February 2022, 56% of the voting population are aged between 18 and 41, which means they were born from 1981 and after. And even those that were born in 1972, when Marcos declared martial law, when he was toppled by people's power in 1986. Those were just still very young, at 14 years old. They would have no memory of the martial law years, the Marcos tyrannical and corrupt ruling. So they were very easily, you know, they easily believed what was being um, circulated in the social media in all the platforms of the massive disinformation that was done by Marcos' authority camp. That is one massive disinformation. The second, the red tagging the demonizing and tagging of opposition parties and candidates. Even the candidate for president, uh, Vice President Lenny Robredo, was also red-tagged. Main opposition candidates and supporters, especially the progressive parties, was uh, tagged as either communist or communist supporters or communist recruiters, recruiters of the New People's Army. And a few days before the election, the Marcos Duterte camp circulated a big lie around the whole country using various information platforms. The lie was that the Makabayan bloc, which include the Bayan Muna, Anakpawis, Gabriela, Kabataan, and the ACT party list, was disqualified. They circulated a fake communique. This communique is the comili uh, commission on election resolution that they were disqualified, and this information reached even the remote areas in the Philippines. And there was very minimal way for the members of these parties to counter the news. So that's the second, the red tagging. The third, check and balance transparency of the veracity of the vote counting machine, the printing of ballot papers, polling places, ballot boxes before and during the election were lacking. There are rules and regulations and laws that govern the Philippine elections, and those were violated. The chairperson of the Commission on Elections and the members of its board were all appointed by Duterte. And teachers who manned the polling places were briefed and monitored. In some places, such as in Cotabato, which is in the southern part of the Philippines, some teachers protested because they were replaced by new ones when they object to some instructions of abnormality. So that was another, you know, way of uh, cheating and the fraud. The fourth disenfranchisement. Apparently, during the election, 1,800 vote-counting machines broke down, depriving many voters to cast their vote. In some polling places, the queue were as long as 10 kilometers, according to the report. Some voters stayed until morning, queuing for more than 10 hours. The polling places were closed in many, boat, in in other places, and many voters were still hoping that they can cast their vote and they still were on the queue. So, those each uh, vote counting machine uh, can accept more than six hundred, you know, six hundred voters, and if one thousand eight hundred broke down, this disenfranch- disenfranchised more than one about one point four million. Voters, which they were not able to vote at all. So that's another one. And there are many reports of other irregularities, such as ballot boxes made of cardboard and not even sealed. So anyone can open it. Another
1: team,
2: yes?
1: Sorry, I was just going to say it sounds like there's a massive, the violations and the massive lists of what. Um, assisted Marcos in getting elected is is really comprehensive and um, yes. could you tell us a little bit, uh, May, about at the barangay level, what did this look like at the barangay level on the ground with voters? Um, you've mentioned the ballot box situation um, and the fact that people struggled to be able to exercise a democratic right, but what, what else what, what other things were deployed at the barangay level um, in the Marcos campaign? Well, is
2: that I, sorry, sorry uh, I didn't understand
1: So, at a local level, with local politicians, um, what happened in in terms of um, assisting the Marcos government to, uh, well, now government to get elected at the barangay level? Uh, Apart from these larger structural issues, were there any local, particular local issues or local um, tactics that were used?
2: Oh yes, Uh, they have to toe the line because uh, with the red tagging, anyone who is opposing, you know, uh, even even before far from the election. There were already a lot of uh, reports of any any uh, politicians or any uh, activists who are against Marcos. They are being, you know, they are being red tagged, and they are also uh, not only red tagged. They are also being um, detained, accused of accused of you know false charges and and detained. Many many actually campaign activists and even local officials were. Arrested on false charges, and I think you have heard about the ABS-CBN that was closed by the thirty because that that is the biggest media network in the Philippines was closed by the thirty because it is reporting unfair, unfavourable information about him about Marcos. So, so they the the officials will I think they would have been before forced the be, you know in the lower level like in the barangay level be forced to codeline of the Marcos the thirty team. If they are against they would just be quiet about it. Otherwise they will be, you know, they will be attacked.
0: May, these are extraordinary lengths to go to just to get re-elected. It must be that the stakes are very, very high. There must be a lot of money once again in it for Marcos and Dutetra, his running partner, Sara Dutetra, the daughter of um, the the former president of uh, the Philippines. And we know that one of Marcos's, Ferdinand Marcos uh, Sr.'s legacy was stealing the wealth of the country. We can only... Only assume, uh, though. Let's not defame them. Um, that this is uh, on the cards once again. Do we know of any economic and financial interests that Marcos and Duterte have that warrant this level? of... Of uh, fraud um, and misinformation, and red tagging, and um, uh, um, uh, 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 oppression—I guess—of of people and repression of people in order to maintain power.
2: Yes. Um, first, uh, the money that was stolen by Marcos was not returned. Not all returned. You know, they—they they have already lost in the, the case, and uh, it was already proven that Marcos has stolen those money. And when the 30 won, those money were not returned, okay? So that is on Marcos' side. On the 30 side, the 30 has a case in the International Criminal Court because of massive human rights violation. Uh, you remember the war on drugs when there is a reported about 30,000 that was killed. So th- those are the you know the, the two points that this this you know this team is trying to avoid for the Marcos to return the stolen money and for the thirty to be tried in the International Criminal Court. Those are among and, and of course they are very interested in maintaining the power because so while they are in power, then whatever crime they have been committed by their you know parents or by the family will just be hidden, just like they are trying to change the history of the Philippines. They are trying to change the, uh, the, the, the um, past, you know. And even they are not yet uh, declared as the winner. They are not yet inaugurated. Sarah Duterte, you know, the vice president of Bongbong Marcos, was already appointed as the secretary of education, of the Department of Education, even you know? before she
0: was declared elected, yes. yeah
2: she is already being appointed as the Secretary of the Department of Education because they really wanted to change the history of the Philippines. they want to erase the uh, you know the atrocities that was done by Marcos as well as the
0: Well, May, we are unfortunately out of time today, but we will have to talk with you again in coming weeks because this is only one part of the story. The other part of the story is life for ordinary Filipinos and working-class people in the country and what life is going to be like for them under uh, this regime uh, and dictatorship. But uh, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Well,
2: thank you so much for giving us the opportunity. uh,
0: You're you're very welcome. And of course, listeners, while we're talking about the absolute fraud of an election in the Philippines, uh, it's important to remind us that though there's a lot of tactics and um, questionable behaviour in our election campaign – For the most part, we are still free uh, uh, from violence and from any coercion when we go to vote in Australia, for the most part. Um, So please uh, exercise your democratic right to vote today.
1: DigiTube, people, place, language. Connecting stories, culture and language across Australia. Contribute your content in digitube.com.au Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming. Download and broadcast promotion.
0: A 3CR supporter. It is 29 minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. That does bring us to the end of the show. Uh, It is the federal election today. Don't forget to get out and vote. Um, Stay tuned to 3CR for the rest of the morning. Our feature interview, sorry, forgot to back announce, was May Katsakas from PASA, the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association. But that is all for Asia-Pacific Currents today from me, Giselle Hanna. And me, Jodie Peskett. And Palestine Remembered is coming up next.